Genesis uh, 4. This uh, is uh, narrative history. It has uh, given rise to some famous fiction. So, for example, uh, John Steinbeck's East of Eden takes its title from Genesis 4, uh, purported to be in the top five uh, books of the 20th century, less uh, perhaps uh, reaching to that uh, lofty literary height, but perhaps uh, astonishingly uh, high in the number of books sold would be Geoffrey Archer's Cain and Abel, which again is uh, from Genesis 4. But let's read this narrative history. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to deceive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and of livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal, Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal, Cain, was Nama. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, 
listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Well, let's pray for God's help for us. Our Father, these are sobering things spoken of here in your Word. It is a bleak yet realistic description of humanity in rebellion against you. Help us, our Father, to see clearly where we stand in this story, which side we are on. Help us to see. And thank you that in this bleak world there is hope of redemption through Jesus. And if we find we are still living in rebellion against you, please lead us to Jesus that we might be redeemed and therefore call on the name of the Lord for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, Genesis chapters 1 to 4, and you'll see some headings on the service sheet, speak to us, as I said, about the history of the beginning of humanity. A number of people have uh, been listening in to these talks on Genesis who are not Christians. And their uh, assessment or comment in relation to the Bible's description of the beginning of humanity is in some ways a struggle to understand and accept that how the Bible describes the beginning of the world and the beginning of humanity and the facts associated with it hard to get their head around. So that's one thing they've said. But what they've also said is that the Bible's description of how humanity in rebellion against God lives and acts and behaves and thinks is exactly like the world we live in. So there is plausibility in these folks' eyes, not so much in coming to terms with what the Bible says happened, but in terms of what happens all the time in our world. And for Christians who have uh, believed in Jesus and who believe that these events happened as well as happen, they are a reminder of the need that we have as Christians, to bear the message of the gospel to the world, whether in Nigeria or here in Scotland. Now, the Bible's account of the beginning of humanity begins by describing creation, and then rebellion, and then judgment, 
and then a promise of redemption. God created this world perfect, and He created humanity right at the top of the mountain, the zenith, the pinnacle of His creation, to bear His image, to rule over His world, but always under His rule. God's perfect creation was founded on three pivotal relationships between God and humanity. He alone is creator. We are created. We rule under Him. The second foundational relationship between us and our fellow humanity. God created humanity that he or she might look at their fellow humanity and see them as bearing the image of God and afford to them the dignity and worth of that. The third foundational relationship that held up God's perfect created order was between humanity and the earth. Humanity was to cultivate, to tend, to nourish, to protect the earth's environment. And in turn, the earth was to give to humanity a perfect habitat in which to live. But humanity rebelled against God. They sought equality with God. They said, no, we want to rule like you. And rebellion of humanity is not breaking rules. It is making rules. It is to put ourselves in the place of God. The consequence of that rebellion, which we see all around us still in the state of the human heart in our world, is a set of broken relationships. One, the relationship between God and humanity is broken. Secondly, the relationships between us and our fellow human beings are absolutely broken. Just think of the world. Think of your own family. And the relationship between humanity and the earth is broken. We do not nurture our environment. And the earth is not a pleasant land. I think someone maybe should switch off the urn. I think it might explode. I'm watching about 60 sets of eyes listening to the... Alistair, it just went off when you walked up to it. That's good. Okay, well, wait till you sit down, otherwise you'll all be distracted. There we go. Such are the perils of being on the road. Perfect creation, rebellion, judgment, and then, boom, right at the beginning, the promise of redemption. Now, glance with me at the promise of redemption. It's chapter 3, verse 15. There goes the other one. In service one, we had banging doors all the way through. So God might have something to say to us this morning. Chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity, or that strife, 
between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, This is uh, the verdict on the serpent, which is Satan, the agent of temptation. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what this is saying is that right from the start of human history, there will be two lines, if you like. There will be two sets of people who live on the earth. There will be on the one hand, the seed or the offspring of the serpent, Satan. And that's humanity that has rejected God. And on the other hand, there will be a seed or a line of promise, which is the line of redeemed humanity. And these two lines, like two families, run through the course of the whole of human history. The seed of the serpent, Satan, humanity in rebellion against God, and the seed of the woman, redeemed humanity. And they will not live side by side without tension. There will be struggle and there will be strife. But in the end, Genesis 3 says, the seed of the woman redeemed humanity, the line of promise will prevail and one day a decisive victory will come when someone will crush Satan's grip on the world. Now, what we get here in Genesis 4 is the division and struggle between the seed of the serpent, which is the family that is humanity that has rejected God, and the seed of the woman, which is the promised line of redemption. Now, the first 24 verses of chapter 4, you'll see on the sheet there, describe the seed of the serpent, humanity in rebellion against God. And you would have expected, I guess, in the first chapter after Genesis 3, a kind of even balance. Let's give 14 verses to each side. But the balance here is, in some ways a typical proportion of what it feels like or looks like as you look back in human history, that what dominates our world history is, not least in terms of size and proportions and power, apparently, is humanity that has said no to God. What's like a kind of background note or a dotted line or a line that nearly has faded out to a very tiny pencil line, the line of promise, redeemed humanity. And so 24 verses against two is about how it is and always has been. So let's look at the 24 verses first. Humanity in rebellion against God. Now, 
Again, if you're not a Christian listening in on uh, this or online, and I'm getting more uh, letters, comments, whatever, as the people listening online, so hello if you're listening online. <laughs> if you're not convinced that what is described here happened at a date in history, well, okay, email me talk to me. But let me ask you if what is described here is an accurate description of how humanity in our world, in its majority, ticks, how it is. So, Eve says at the beginning of chapter, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Maybe she thinks that Cain is the promised redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. Personally, I think that Eve right away realizes her rebellion and has a repentant heart. And she thinks, God, if you, is Cain the one who will break a rebellious tyranny in the world? And I think she thinks that. Little does she know that it will be thousands of years. He, like his dad, Adam, is a worker of the ground. His brother, Abel, is a shepherd who is silent in the background. Your mind might go a few centuries later, if you're a Christian and know the Bible, David, the great king from whom the Redeemer would come, was a shepherd boy. Not the firstborn, not the second, but the last. The name Abel means nothing. The name Cain means I have achieved a great deal. You can imagine the dynamics over tea in that house. Nothing past the salt. I have achieved a great deal. But just see that as a picture of humanity. I have achieved a great deal. It's humanity. In rejection of God. I am nothing without God is able. The two boys grew up, became men, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought to the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So they both brought offerings to God. They both kind of had some sense of acknowledgement of God. And most people in our world, or certainly in the Western world, have some kind of sense of acknowledgement of God. Most people do. But there's a big difference between the two of them. Now, there's a hint in the text as to what the difference is. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Really, what he should have brought, if his heart was in it, was the first fruits of the ground. It's almost like Cain goes out into the garden. He says, what can I see? What can I find? Well, there's some apples lying on the ground. I'll have them and bring them to God. It's kind of thing going on, yeah. And... Uh, Cain was indifferent about what he brought. Abel was careful. He brought the firstborn of his flock. Or Cain came to God with an arrogant heart. Abel came to God with a humble heart. And the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament sheds a little more light. He says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. 
Abel lived by faith in God. Cain did not. Or the difference between the two of them was not what they brought, but that one of them brought his heart and the other one didn't. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You might bring a, an offering or do something, but is your heart there or not? It wasn't for Cain. Now, the striking thing about this is on the surface, they looked uh, similar. They both offered sacrifices, but as to the state of their hearts, they were totally different. In fact, Cain maybe looked the part even more than Abel. But the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had not. Now, there's something quite provocative, I, I think, in what the writer to Genesis is saying. Cain, in some ways, is religious. He brings an offering to God. Religious rituals are token gestures. And what does religion mean? Religion isn't another world from people like me standing behind this lectern. Religion doesn't need to wear robes because it's about your heart. You can wear all the ecclesiastical robes in the world and have a wonderful heart that loves God. You can wear an open-neck sweatshirt and look the part but have no heart. You can play musical instruments on a Sunday badly, unlike them, and have a heart for God. Or you can play them brilliantly and have no heart. Religious rituals or token gestures without humble faith and heart conviction mean nothing to God. Nothing. Then and still. It's not that every time you come to God, your heart is always engaged. Often it's not. But if there is no heart habitually engaged, and God sees into your heart, and He says, it's surface, it's not real. And where does religion sit? Religion is in the line of Cain. God saw through him, and when God sees through us, it does one of two things. It leads you to turn to him in repentance and say, you've seen through me. There's that little moment with our kids when I see through them. <laughs> And they kind of weigh it up and they either go, okay, dad, or I'm going to compound it. It's what kids do. It's what the human race does. How would Cain go? Well, he went this way. He was angry and his face fell. Angry to God that God would dare to refuse not to accept him. You see, Cain was here, level with God in his mind. How dare you, God, not accept me and my sacrifice? How, you, how dare you not accept my religion? The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? I'm God. Why are you angry? 
Why is your faith fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If your heart's in it, if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule it. There's a warning. Cain, sin like a, a lion is crouching at the door of your heart. It's either going to consume you or turn you to me. And uh, God's words bounce off Cain's heart, and the beast that is sin overpowers him. And uh, what does he do? Well, he does what has been a pattern again throughout history, is that when people turn against God, they often turn against God's people, the righteous, able So what does he do? He kills him. The first murder in history is a shocking one. It's the murder of a brother to a brother. He takes him, verse 8, to a field where there are no witnesses, where there is no one to hear his screams. Of course, there were no forensics then, I guess, to find out who it was. Little did Cain realize that the first murder in human history would make it into the best-selling book in human history. Or more importantly, that God saw as he sees everything in our world, everything in your life and mine. He sees. And so with the sin of Adam and Eve, likewise, God immediately puts Cain in the dock. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know I am my brother's keeper. That's just a straight lie. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, this is a a really important juncture in the narrative. Eve may have thought that Cain was the seed of the woman, the line of promise, the line of redemption. But it turns out that Cain is the seed of the serpent, Satan, out to destroy the seed of the woman who is Abel. And so God pronounces judgment on Cain, verse 11. You are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Striking that back in Genesis 3, God curses the ground and God curses the serpent, Satan. But he never cursed Adam and Eve. For from them, the line of promise would come. But he curses Cain because Cain and his line are the seed of the serpent, humanity in rebellion against God. Cain and his descendants are exiled from the presence of God. And so, humanity is divided from the start between those who say no to God and the line of promise, God's redeemed people.
Now, Cain says to God, verse 13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken of him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, what's all this about? What's this mark on Cain? In this darkest of scenes, when this man has rejected God, there's a mark on him. Well, I think it's God's mercy extended to him. That in his lifetime, no one will be allowed to take his life until God does. And when God does, his opportunity to turn to him will have gone. God's grace, God's mercy reaches on day one out to the seed and the line of rebellious humanity. It's very striking. Did Cain repent and turn to God? Well, we don't know. The New Testament would lean us to suggest that he didn't in the way that it describes him. So, for example, in 1 John 3, verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. Did he repent? We cannot know for sure. What we can know for sure is that anyone who hears the invitation from Jesus Christ to come into the redeemed line is welcome. Then Cain, verse 16 of chapter 4, went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. There's Steinbeck's title, East of Eden, away from God. Now, so we've got these two lines in humanity. The next chunk, verses 17 to 24, speaks to us of the six generations in Cain's line. This is interesting stuff. I'm convinced it is. Let me convince you. The line of the serpent, Satan, and these people you don't know, yeah? Enoch, Irad, Mehujel, Methushel, Lamech, two wives, verse 19. Five generations in, God had said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Central to the fabric of God's creation of humanity is marriage between a man and a woman, five years into the history of humanity, the basic ordinance of marriage is under attack. Lamech took two wives, verse 19, Ada and Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock. Jubal, the father of those who play the lyre and the harp. Tubal Cain, the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Now these verses are striking. This is the development of civilization. Yep. 
Jabal, the father of agriculture and farming. Jubal, music, culture, arts. Tubal Cain, industry, building, science, technology. And you can extend these lines on now. Yeah? Industry, building, science, technology. Wonderful medical advances long down in history and so on and so forth. Now, the point the writer is making is subtle and powerful is that humanity makes great advances. So much of our world, most of our world, is humanity who have rejected God. They make wonderful advances. And God's grace extends over to them and says these are good advances. But it does not offer to humanity redemption. The reason I think the writer of Genesis describes the progress of civilization in the line of the serpent, Satan, Cain's line, is not because progress in human endeavor is wrong. It's because it cannot save you. So, for example, and I apologize to the doctors in service one, and if you're here as a doctor, my apologies to you as well, but the statistics are overwhelming. Take the most advanced research in medicine. And we thank God for this. I have a close friend in London who is the head of uh, Cancer Research UK in the Marston. He's the leading guy in cancer research. It's wonderful he's a Christian. Astonishing advances in medicine have made life more bearable, a little longer, but have not taken one iota off the mortality rate. But it's wonderful what's happened in medicine. But it cannot save humanity. The wonderful things that medicine can do can be used for ill. And of course, when humanity really rejects God's rule, what that might lead to in the world of medicine is controlling the entry and the exit from life. So humanity says, even though we cannot deal with the mortality rate, well, we will. Which is what is happening increasingly in our world. The most wonderful, wonderful music and art and culture, the most wonderful technological advance even if even if the great vision of people like Bob Geldorf, remember that? Global hope to end poverty, which is good and laudable and right and true, and we speak with the hypocrisy of the West. Even if he had achieved that, it would not save humanity. So, what should we do? Should we despair and give up on medical research? No.
Should we give up on creativity, culture, and the arts? No, because they speak of God's grace. Should we despair of political solutions to the gravest problems in the world? Many of you will have watched uh, Cameron and the MPs debating the issues over Syria, and I watched it. I thought it was a, a, I thought it was a, a strong and carefully argued debate where party politics were laid aside and there was a deep sense of the desire to do what was right. Should we give up on that? No, we should pray for them. But nobody in that room in their heart must think that that is going to save humanity. We look back on Genesis 4 and the civilization and think how primitive it was. We are astonishingly far advanced. And yet the 20th century was the bloodiest in history. As humanity advances, it runs further from God. The 21st century is not shaping up much better. And in five generations from now, humanity will look back at those of us who lived at the beginning of the 21st century and see how primitive they were. Their smartphones, how crude. And who knows where we will be in terms of the management of human life five generations from now. The point is that that is good stuff, but it cannot save humanity. And Lamech's song in verse 23 and 24 Seven generations in, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then mine is seventy-sevenfold. Think of concepts like greed, revenge, anger, spite, malice. They run like... They run like... Uh, courses through our world and humanity. Of course, these are the real issues that rightly should be debated in parliaments around the world. How are we going to deal with the human heart? How are we going to deal with it? Verses 17 to 24, Cain's descendants, it's striking that the Lord is absent. It's not there. Right, that's humanity in rebellion against God. That's what we see in our world. The other side, redeemed humanity, verses 25 and 26, this little tiny line. Remember, God promised that there would be a line. There will be strife and struggle between them. 
But in the end, the seed of the woman, redeemed humanity, will prevail, and the decisive victory would come when someone in the line of the seed of the woman would crush Satan and his tyranny on the earth. Who was the seed of the woman? Abel? But he was killed. In Genesis 4, the first seven generations in the history of humanity is dominated by the seed of the serpent, Satan's line, humanity in rebellion. And so is all of history ever since. Verses 25 and 26, though, they come at the end of the chapter, although they're parallel, I think, to the bit that came just before, the bit that came before Cain bore a son, and then paralleling that, Eve bore another son, and his name was Seth. Adam knew his wife again, verse 25. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so the pattern and progress of human history is set. There are two families in humanity, those who are in rebellion against God and redeemed humanity. Two lines through history. Now, let me just draw out as we close three applications. You'll see them on the sheet. Firstly, the seed of the woman will triumph over the seed of the serpent. Put yourself in the position of the first hearers of Genesis as they kind of hovered on the edge of the promised land. And all the mighty nations around them and all their difficult, turbulent history behind them when the line of promise virtually was so faint you couldn't see it. It would not look like nor feel like to them that the seed of the woman, the line of promise, will triumph over the seed of the serpent, humanity in rebellion against God. If you had lived in Babylon as one of the exiles, I was mentioning this in the first service and Somebody in the church has just been to the museum in Berlin where the Ishtar Gate has been reconstructed, twice the height of this room. If you had walked through that gate in Babylon in the ancient world, you would not have been convinced by appearances and how you felt that the line of promise was more powerful than humanity in rebellion against God. You would not have thought that God was on his throne and not Nebuchadnezzar. Now you might, because the power of Babylon has been reconstructed in a museum. Or the 500 years after the exile before the coming of Jesus, when there was no voice, no prophet, nothing. Unless you have God's word, you would nick think, you would not think that the seed of the woman was more powerful than the seed of the serpent. But what about us? Christ has come and has destroyed the power of Satan. His church is universal. 
It's growing rapidly. When we had a, one of our gospel partners recently from China, we all think that China is enormous exponential growth in the gospel, and there is. But we had our gospel partner here, and he said, well, it's about 3%. And every time it gets to that kind of level, the other side begins to press in and press it back and press it back. So they need to know this. Or when the robberies go back to Nigeria, which is not an easy place to be as a Christian, does it look like in Nigeria the seed of the line of promise is the powerful line that will lead to the new creation? No. And does it feel like it here? No. And yet God's Word says that it will prevail. Now, the second point of application is which side are you on? And the truth for all humanity is that we all begin on the side of rebellion against God. And the truth is that you are not born into God's line. You're not born into God's line because your parents went to church. You're not in God's line because you are religious. We are all in rebellion against God. But the Lord Jesus invites us all to come into the line of redemption simply through faith and trust in Him. Think of Cain at that pivotal moment. His sin, which we all know in our hearts is real, would either lead him to turn to God, to seek forgiveness, or consume him and turn him against God. Whose side are you on? Which camp are you in? It's so non-PC, isn't it? But it's God's Word. There is no watchtower to observe humanity, because we are humanity. There is no fence to stand on with one foot. There is no place to hide from God. But there is an invitation to turn to him every single minute we are alive. And in some ways, God keeps us alive that we might. And uh, my final point in the sheet, remember sin still crouches at the door. There's the pivotal point in the narrative when the Lord says to Cain, look, sin Cain is crouching at the door of your heart like a lion. It'll either turn you to me or it will consume you and turn you against me. I'm convinced because I'm a Christian that Genesis Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. While we struggle to get our heads around the fact that some of this stuff happened, sparse the narrative. 
But I'm increasingly convinced every time I speak on this that it describes the state of humanity and the human heart as it is. Right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this description in Genesis of the state of humanity. Lord, we prayed at the beginning that we would all listen and consider where we stand in this. We recognize, Lord, that we all are sinful men and women. And we either continue to live in that rebellion against God, or we play cards like religion, or surface assent, or we play our relative moral goodness compared to others. We say we're not like Cain, but we do have envy and anger and malice in our hearts. So we are. We play these cards, but you see right through us. And oftentimes, we face that choice. We either turn to you, or sin that crouches at the door, pounces like a lion, consumes us in anger against you. Maybe it's happening here right now. Help us, Lord, to humbly turn to the cross of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness we need and the restoration we long for truly in our hearts. Help us to do it. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.